Well, let's pray together. Father, that, that prayer from the Old Testament resonates with us more deeply, perhaps, than it has in the past. We need your favor and your blessing. We need your grace, which is a confession that we don't deserve it, but we are in desperate need of it. So give us now, Lord, the grace to hear your son, Jesus Christ, tell a pointed story. We're all in it. Help us find ourselves in it and respond, Jesus, as you would want us to do. In Jesus' name, I pray for myself and for these, Lord, who will hear your word. Amen. I wouldn't embarrass him for the world, but many of you have been kind to pray for my son, Ryan. He's home for a couple of days, and he's sitting right over there if you want to say, if you want to say hi, okay? Now, let's look, please, to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 18. Did you hear the birds fight during the last song? I was so grateful that they chose to fight during the song rather than at this moment. That has been the custom of birds, motorcycles, and fire trucks since we've been outdoors. Been some amazing timing. I'm so glad for your patience the hard work that so many of you put in every week helping us set all this up. Our hope and our goal in these outdoor services is that church just feels like church, that you will feel welcomed into the love of God and into the love of this family, which is a local congregation. But just like every family, there are many who work quietly behind the scenes to make these gatherings easy and comfortable for the rest of us. So for those of you who are doing all of that, thank you again. For those of you who may have time uh, to join us and to join that rotation of people who make all this happen, setting up and tearing down, uh, let me know. Send me an email. Talk to Pastor Gregory after the service. Uh, many hands make light work. Clearly, you're in the wrong gathering. Do you hear that? I, I will not generate that kind of excitement and joy, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. Can you all hear that? That's joy, by the way. There's no, there's, there's no trouble. They're just happy. I'm just telling you, you're apparently in the wrong group, okay? I don't anticipate for any reason. I've already been through this passage once. At no point did anybody shout for joy in the 9 a.m. service. There we go. We'll take it. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus told a story about standards. That's what Luke 18 is about. It's a story about standards. Specifically, it's a story about spiritual standards. Standards really dominate our lives. If you've ever applied for a college that you thought you couldn't get into, tried to get a job where you didn't really think you had a shot, asked for a date with someone who was out of your league, took a test that made you nervous, you've encountered standards. God has standards. The human heart points back toward God through the conscience because God himself is righteous. He made us in his image and marred though his image may be. We all have a sense of right and wrong in our hearts. And both morally and in other ways, we deal with standards every day of our lives. In fact, having grown up in northern Mexico, one of the great culture shocks for me coming back to the United States as 
Uh, well, there were three times. There was once in second grade, once in seventh grade. I do not recommend an international move when you're in seventh grade. Seventh grade is awkward for everybody. When you're the kid who grew up outside of the United States, who suddenly injected into Amarillo, Texas, in your awkward, ugly 13th year, it's not a good time, ladies and gentlemen. But I discovered through that experience that Mexicans, at least in northern Mexico, where I was growing up, had one way of looking at life, and people in Amarillo, Texas, had an entirely different way of looking at life. That was very evident when it came to driving. About the time I was 16, I started, like most kids, wanting some independence, and I knew if I had a car, I could get away from my mom and dad and do largely what I pleased if I had my own set of wheels. That helped me, that made me ask, where, where, where do I get a license? How do I get a license? Unfortunately, I had a friend who was about 10 years older, I think. He was in his mid-20s. He said, come with me, we're getting your license today. He had three conversations, and he came back with a signed eye exam, a signed written exam, and a signed driving test. So I just sat there and said, take these papers to this window and you'll have your license. I now understand how corrupt and illegal and sinful this all was, you understand. <laughs> but I'm 16 and just thrilled for the opportunity, so I went to the window, laid all the paperwork down. She looked across and said, what kind of license do you want? Just a regular driver license or a chauffeur's license? And I said, well, as long as we're here, give me the chauffeur's license. So. That's how I became a chauffeur in uh, the city of Chihuahua, Mexico. Things have changed considerably. Standards have risen. But they were pretty low, at least if you knew my friend. So a year later, when we were in El Paso, Texas, and I needed an American driver license, ugh. here's something that is true in life. Texas is just different, okay? That is true in just about every way. That is true even, at least in those days, I suppose they're still doing it this way, when it comes time to get a driver license. Because what I didn't realize was there would be no friend. Everything would be on the level. I would take an actual eye exam. I would take an actual written test. And then came the driving test, which in Texas, at least at that time, involved my 17-year-old self in a beat-down, worn-out missionary car with marginal air conditioning, getting in the car with a Texas state trooper. <laughs> Texas state troopers administer the driving test in Texas. It's not some disgruntled guy from the DMV who wishes he were anybody else. It's a guy with a uniform and a hat and a gun. And I barely kept my eyes on the road because I kept looking at the pistol wondering if it goes especially poorly, what could happen here? Well, it was about 103 degrees that day. The air conditioning worked pretty well. He was pretty merciful. He passed. I've had a driver license ever since. Some of you are now understanding why. Well, if you've ridden in my car, now my life makes a lot more sense to you, right? Yes. You don't have to agree, folks. That's unkind. All right. The story in Luke chapter 18 is a story about standards. In Luke chapter 18, people are coming to Jesus, and there's two kinds of people in the crowd. There are those, we might want to ask the gym actually to close the door at this point. There are people in the crowd who are amazed that Jesus actually likes them. 
He welcomes them. He eats with them. He teaches them. He treats them not only in a principled way as if he loves them, he loves them by treating them as if he actually likes them. There were others in the crowd who aren't listening very carefully to Jesus. They don't really care much what he has to say because all the new information and teaching that he's bringing is making no difference to them for one simple reason. They trust themselves. They're unteachable. And this is a short parable, and from this point forward, the sermon should be shorter than usual because it's a short story, but it has a very simple and powerful point. And for you to benefit from it, the hardest thing and the only thing that is necessary is for you to listen to Jesus and believe what he says. That's always the case. Parables are like jokes. They're little stories with an unexpected twist that usually have something that you didn't see coming that change the narrative, that, inverse, that reverse the way things normally work, and the surprise is the point itself. You see, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus is going to tell a very simple story of two men who go up to pray. They both seem like bad guys in the year 2020. Because Jesus says that the two men who went to prayer that day were a Pharisee and a publican, a tax collector. In our day, a Pharisee and a tax collector from Jesus' day, we both understand that those are really guys that are not that great. The Pharisees are self-righteous. They're judgmental. This is actually the people who are going to crucify Jesus. The tax collectors in Jesus' day, if you're unfamiliar, are Jewish citizens who have sold themselves out to the Roman government to collect for the empire, and the price of their betrayal is collect more than is due, and you can be wealthy. You can actually betray your own people, and we'll pay you by making you incredibly rich. You'll, not many people will like you. You'll have the contempt of your whole country to face, but at least you'll have plenty of money. In Jesus' day, the tax collector is an obviously contemptible, hated person. But the Pharisee, Pharisee was a good guy. No longer true. If somebody calls you a Pharisee in 2020, they know they're calling you something like the Saturday Night Live version of the church lady. You're self-righteous. You're actually think you're good with God, but you're actually very far from Him. In Jesus' day, the Pharisee was an incredibly respected person. He was the custodian of God's law. The Pharisees were the ones who had, so to speak, the spiritual keys that could open up the understanding of the Old Testament and explain God's terms to people. In the first century, the Pharisee was something like a generous businessman who was also an Eagle Scout who took care of orphans on the weekend. Highly, highly respected figure in society. That's where the twist is as Jesus begins to tell this simple story about both of these men going up to pray. Look in Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Luke actually tells you what the parable is about and why it's told. There is a parable, Luke says, 
that was told to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And people who trust that they're righteous, in other words, that they're good enough for God, will always do this. They will always treat other people with contempt. This story about standards is really a question not about whether you can get into the school or whether you can get the job or whether you can date the guy or the girl. This is a story about the most important question of all. The question is, who is good enough for God? People are coming to Jesus, and many of them in the crowd are saying, it's a shame that you welcome the wrong kind of people. It's a shame that you welcome bad people unlike ourselves. There are some in the crowd who, according to Luke, trust in themselves that they were righteous, and consequently, they treat others with contempt. Here's the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, don't let your 21st century understanding of those two people steer your understanding of the story. In the ears of the people that Jesus spoke to first, Jesus is saying the best guy among us and the worst guy among us both went to pray. The Sunday school teacher, the righteous man went to pray, and also the Benedict Arnold, the traitor to the nation, the one who is unjustly rich because he helps the Roman occupiers, they both went up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The Pharisee is beginning to pray to God, and he's telling this story about standards, and he teaches me the first and the most important thing about standards. When it comes to answering the question of who is good enough for God, here's the first thing I learned from this parable. We all like to put the standard where we can reach it. Every human being in this world thinks most of the time that they're doing the right thing. Have you noticed that? Let me be self-confessional. I think I'm right pretty much all the time. When I discover that I'm wrong, I change my mind, and then guess what happens? I'm right again. You operate the same way. There are people listening to Jesus who trust in themselves. They are the ones, they are the targets for this story. And Jesus says, the best among you went to pray and listened to him pray, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Jesus is teaching us about man-made spiritual standards. They always have three building blocks. The first is the things that you don't do. People feel better about themselves and come to believe that they're good enough for God based on the first thing, they don't do certain things. They also feel better about themselves because there's other things that they do. 
The Pharisee said, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And just so you think that, just so you know, that's not symbolic. If he was fasting according to Pharisaical tradition, that meant that two out of seven days of the week, he went two entire days with no food and no water. His tithing was beyond 10%. Probably this man was giving 20% of his very normal income back into the treasury at the temple. This is one reason these people had such respect. They were, both in what they did not do and what they chose to do, they were trying to live righteous and exemplary lives. And the third building block of man-made spiritual righteous standards is that There's some things that I do, there's other things that I don't, and I'm not like this guy over here. You notice he said, I am not like this tax collector. Now here's where this sermon, simple and brief as it is, can get boring on the one hand for you and within the boredom a little bit dangerous. If you don't identify with the Pharisee, If you don't understand his spiritual reasoning, you're more like him than you think. Because every person in this world, until they understand the holiness and the grace of God, lives in a self-assured spiritual state. And we get by with it by looking at the good things we do, looking at the bad things we don't, and if all else fails comforting ourselves, saying, listen, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but have you met my neighbor? That guy, that guy, holy smokes, at least I'm not like that. And every person you know, unless they have a clear understanding of what Jesus is teaching here, navigates through life feeling pretty good about themselves pretty much all the time. That's the first lesson We all like to put the standard where we can reach it. But Jesus will go on to explain that God's standard is so high that not one of us can reach it. That's the lesson of the second man who's praying. Look now in verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, what's going on here? Jesus is telling a very short and dramatic story, and he's saying that the worst among them went to pray. According to Jewish religion and tradition, he knew where to go to pray. But when he got there, he was so weighed down by shame and by guilt. He wouldn't even look up to heaven where he had been taught God lived. He would not make any kind of external display of I'm here to pray. On the contrary, he did something very Jewish at that time. He pounded himself on the chest. The only place we see people pounding their chest is NFL football games. After a big play, the athlete will jump off the grass, pound his chest, and that's, in our culture, that's a way of saying, look what I did. In Jewish culture, what this man is doing is saying, I don't deserve to be here. I have come into the place where God is worshipped and where the Word of God is taught, but I I understand I don't deserve to stand here with the others. And he only had one thing to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
And that's the heart of the parable. I really won't take much longer. Please understand this, and you'll understand the most spiritually important lesson of your entire life if you're not sure who God is and how you're doing with Him. If you struggle with shame and guilt, even as a Christian, here is the simple liberating truth from the middle of this parable. God's standard is so high that not one of us can reach it. Not one. Two men went to pray. They were both guilty. They were both far from God, but only one of them knew it. The publican knew it. He knew that God was so high above him that God's righteousness was so beyond his own that he could not reach him. He didn't even want to look up. He did his human best to show contrition, to show repentance, and that is the truth of the Bible. The reason most people, guilty as we are, sinful as we are, weak and frail and misguided and broken morally the way we are, is because we delude ourselves by doing the same thing the Pharisee did. We think about the good things we do. We think about the evil things that we have nothing to do with. And I don't know if you've noticed, regardless of what you're doing and how you're living, you can always look around the culture and find someone so much worse than yourself. And in that, take comfort that you're going to be okay when the truth is none of us will answer to God based on the life of anyone else except our own. God's standard is so high that not one of us can reach it. Listen to the psalmist say so. Psalm 71, verse 19. I believe this is in your notes. If you have this, read this with me. Here's the psalmist reflecting on the character of God, and here's what he said. Psalm 71, verse 19 says, Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? Let's just think practically here for a second. Would you say to anybody that knew you that your righteousness reaches the high heavens? Would you say to someone, you are very fortunate to meet me because in all of my thoughts, attitudes, actions, and choices, you can be assured of this, my righteousness reaches the high heavens. Would anybody say that? If you started talking like that, you would probably be locked up very, very quickly because anybody who knew you, anybody who knew human beings would know that you've lost touch with the reality of your human nature. What is God like? God is this kind of God, His righteousness. In other words, both in His character and His behavior, His righteousness reaches the high heavens. He does great things. There is no one on earth like Him. This idea is found all across the Bible, but the part that probably troubles me the most is something that Jesus said. It's something that seems to be said almost in passing. Jesus is just drawing on one little portion of the human experience and warning everybody that God made and gave life to that we would answer for everything we did, even the way we talk. Matthew 12, verse 36 and 37. Matthew 12, 36 and 37, Jesus said this, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. 
Sit with that with just, for just a second. Jesus, the Son of God, who kept all of the promises in the front part of this Bible in the Old Testament. Jesus, who proved by his own exemplary, sinless character, who said to people who hated him, who among you can accuse me of sin? And they were silent. Jesus alone warned of a day of judgment. Because the point of standards is people are measured against them. The reason you were anxious trying to get into the college or trying to get the job or trying to get the date is because you knew. It may not be clear to you. It may not be in print anywhere that the person interviewing you or evaluating you or considering going out with you, they have a standard. You're not sure what it is. But you are conscious that you may not make the cut. And it makes you feel anxious. It fills you with doubt. Jesus is saying to every person who will listen that the God who sets standards, whose standards are this high, will someday call every person to account for everything they've done, including Matthew 12, 36, every careless word they speak. I think one of the reasons this verse speaks so powerfully to me is I talk a lot. And you already know, if you know the Bible, if I tell you I talk a lot, guess what I also do? I sin a lot by what I say. It's in the Bible. Proverbs says, where words are many, sin is not absent. In other words, keep talking and you're going to get in trouble. You're going to offend God. You're going to offend other people. It's human nature. And Jesus warns me, a day will come where I will give account for every careless word I'm spoken. Enough about me. Can you sit with that standard for just for a second? If Jesus calls you to account for every careless word that you have spoken in the month of October alone, How's that going? How do you feel about it? Every word spoken, whether they heard it or not. And then you consider that God, whose righteousness is as high as the heavens, God not only hears words, He also understands thoughts and intentions and motivations. We're all in trouble. Here's the standard. By your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. What, am, what is Jesus trying to tell us through this teaching, through this parable? That God's standard is His righteousness, not ours. Go back to Luke chapter 18 and we're done. Here's the point. Here's the twist. Here's the principle to take with you this for the rest of your life. Jesus says in verse, thir in verse 13, He quotes the tax collector praying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Parable's over. Here's the point. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. In other words, two men went up to meet God in prayer that day. They were both guilty. They were both sinful. Only one of them knew it. One man went to meet God trusting in his own righteousness. He went home condemned. One man feeling the weight of his sinfulness, of his imperfection, 
called out in a simple broken prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And that man went home saved. The, win- the sinner went home saved. Here's the principle. People who trust God instead of themselves will receive his mercy. If you don't listen to one thing I said, if I, if I lost you through the stories and the explanations, if the detour into the Psalms and the Gospel of Matthew left you a little bit confused at the point, please understand this because this is Jesus' point in this teaching. People who trust God instead of themselves always receive His mercy. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The sinner went home saved. The self-righteous man went home condemned as he has always been. What does this mean for you? Simply this. If you are not absolutely certain that you have put your personal trust in Jesus, in Jesus alone, you're not going to make it. He literally is the only one who can save you. Jesus is not a different and special teacher. He is not a superior philosopher. His life is an example, but he is much more than that. He is the Son of God sent after you who, like me, has sinned and offended this God whose every thought and action every day gives witness to the difference between the righteousness of God and my own. Jesus warns me that the only reason I can feel pretty good about myself spiritually is because I compare myself with other people, and that just won't work. Come with me into a human courtroom, because people see this for some reason. We see this in the world we live in. We refuse to believe it about the spiritual world where God holds the standards. Two men are lifetime criminals. There's no doubt about it, they admit it. In fact, they often tell of their exploits in the jailhouse and they talk about scams and swindles and crimes that they've got away with at other times in their lives. They're both transported on on the county bus to face the judge. One of them is an embezzler. He's developed a very wealthy lifestyle by ripping off other people and profiting from their money. The other one is someone even more serious. He's destroyed far more lives because he's a murderer. The embezzler goes to the judge first, and he says to the judge, Judge, you should let me go. I don't deny that I've ripped a bunch of people off, that I have a multi-million dollar lifestyle because I'm a con artist and a scam, but you should let me go because the guy I rode over here with on the bus, he kills people and he's proud of it. You should let me walk. Is a judge going to do that? No. A judge is going to deal with each person in turn. Someone who has stolen property and money is going to receive that kind of penalty. Someone who has taken another life illegally is going to get that kind of penalty. Please understand this. God is a righteous judge. Psalm 7 verse 11 warns that he is angry with the wicked every 
day. He is the judge of everyone he made. He won't be arbitrary. He won't be, be capricious. He won't be cruel. He won't be unfair. He will give, as Jesus warned, he will give to everyone according to their deeds. My point is, whatever your spiritual trajectory is, the fact that many others have perhaps done much worse in this life than you have won't do you a bit of good when God calls you to account. You will answer for yourself. The secrets of your heart will be revealed. The weight and the intention of your words and your actions will be evaluated. And on that day, you'll deal with the righteous judge. And here's Jesus' warning and promise. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. If you go through your whole life saying, I'm good enough and God can just deal with me, God can just welcome me as I am with my choices, you will be on that day humbled. But if you humble yourself, Jesus promised, you will be what? You'll be exalted. You'll be picked up. The point of the parable is to present the reader a very simple question. Do you trust Jesus or do you trust yourself? Because Jesus came to seek and to save, he said, that, those who were lost. He came to be a friend to sinners and to die for sinners, to offer a trade between his righteous life and your sinful life. That offered that good news is being presented all over the world. That's why the High Street Church of Springfield and that's why Cross Point Church in Huntington Beach is preaching the words of Jesus and sending missionaries around the world to announce God's terms and announce God's righteousness. To announce the good news that those who will humble themselves and say, I'm I'm dead wrong, but Jesus is right and he can give me life, will receive from him life. If you look at the prayer in this parable, it's very simple. It's only a few words. It's more of a gasp. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus is just telling a story, but when he was actually dying for my sins and for yours, the Gospels tell us of a man who was dying beside him who started out that afternoon mocking Jesus. But at a certain point in the hours they shared, each being killed on their own cross, something happened in him. He changed his mind about Jesus and said to the other man, we're getting what we deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. And then he turned to Jesus according to the gospel and said, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Dying by crucifixion was to die by being asphyxiated. He could barely speak, but he Gasp out this request. Jesus, I believe that they're telling the truth about you. When you return, think kindly of me. Some of you who have read that account in the gospel know a promise that Jesus made him. Do you remember? Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's grace. Where's restitution? Where's promising to do better? Where's moral correction? It doesn't exist because Jesus covers all of it by his own sacrifice. That's the offer I'm making you now. And let me deal with an objection that I've heard all my life from the time I was a teenager and I started witnessing to people when I was about 12 or 13 years old. People come to this point in understanding Jesus' offer and turn him away by this simple objection. They say, it's too easy. 
You mean to tell me that I do all this, I'm so far from God, no doubt about it, I've sinned, I've broken God's laws, my conscience is killing me sometimes, I feel awful. If I'm really, really self-reflective and self-aware, no doubt about it, I've sinned, I'm just like everybody else, no doubt I need God's forgiveness, but I just kind of turn myself in, that's it. He just covers it all up, it's too easy. That's the objection. Friends, a gift is meant to be free to the person receiving it. It's simple and easy for you because it was so costly for Jesus to bear your sins on the cross. What, peop, what keeps people from trusting him is their own dogged insistence and pride that they want him to help, but they want to put in their own effort. What keeps people from relieving the good news is pride of simply, humbly receiving the gift that is being offered. It's a little bit like this Bible. You may have noticed I'm waving this Bible around. This Bible is by far my favorite. It's the nicest Bible I own. The reason I own it is because it was a gift to me. It never would have occurred to me to buy a Bible with leather this nice for myself. But I use it very, very happily. I often pray for the guy who gave it to me. It's expensive. Now, suffice it, to, for purposes of the example, let's just say that you and I have coffee. We become fast friends, and you admire this Bible. I say, you know what? I'd love to have you. I'd love for you to have one just like it. I order it for you. I give it to you. Say, here you go, buddy. Enjoy. You're really going to love it. It really adds a whole other level aesthetically to the experience of hearing God's Word. You're going to love it. And then I call you two days later, and you go, you know, that, that is pretty pricey. That is goatskin, after all. Could you uh, chip in 40 bucks? Would that be a gift? No, be a bargain, but not a gift. The salvation that Jesus Christ offers is not a bargain. It's a gift. It's not you do your best and Jesus covers the rest of the journey. It's that you can do nothing. It's that, as the Bible says elsewhere, you're dead in your sin. You're not even looking for God. The reason you're hearing God perhaps this morning is because God has already come searching for you. That even if you don't know the trouble you're in, God already does. And he sent his son to cover the cost of your sins. And he insists on doing it all because it's the only way you're ever going to be forgiven. And the spiritual obstacle that stands in every human heart against receiving the good news and the gospel of grace is the dogged insistence that you'll get it right this week. Or that you'll accept Jesus a little bit, but you insist on being a participant in your own rescue. No, we call him Savior because he does all the saving. He is a great rescuer, but he will only rescue those who humbly confess that they are in need of the rescuer. And if you will do that this morning, he'll save you. I know because he did it for me. I won't take the time to tell you my story, but I cannot begin to tell you with what pride I fought God. How many times I broke off my own prayer of confession saying, I'm not that bad. I'll get better anyway. How many times I refused grace because I was so self-assured in my own self-righteousness, just like every human being on earth. So person to person, if this weren't a church service, if we, you weren't in a tent and I wasn't on a stage, behind a makeshift pulpit, I would just tell you person to person, not pastor, 
forget about that. All I am is a hungry person telling you where you can find spiritual food. And I'm just asking you person to person to come to an end of yourself, confess your need of a Savior, and if you are not absolutely certain that your sins are completely cleansed and covered by Christ, to claim Him humbly this morning as your Savior and your boss. And if you're a Christian, if this is all familiar to you, to not lose the wonder that He loved you when you were in that condition and to wake up every morning with whatever trouble you may have on this earth with an enduring gratitude that He loved you this way, that your suffering on this earth will someday end actually in what Jesus promised, eternal life, and that really everything that actually matters in your life is already covered by His grace, and it's all happened because Jesus picks up those who humble themselves, and He casts down who though on those who insist that they are good enough for God. Let's pray together, shall we? Can I ask you to just bow your head for a moment? Give other people around you a moment to be honest with God. Do so yourself. Very, very simple question. Are you quite certain when the careless words that you have spoken are evaluated that you will be forgiven and justified because you have trusted Jesus? Are you absolutely certain that when the secrets of your heart are revealed, you'll be okay because the righteousness of Jesus will cover your sins? That's the offer. That's what he lived and died to do, to trade your life for his own. If you keep trusting and insisting on your own way that you'll do better, you might, compared to other human beings, you might actually do better. But you'll never reach God. His standard is beyond you. His righteousness is as high as the heavens. The only way you will have his forgiveness and be welcomed into his family is if you humble yourself and confess along with the man in the parable, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said that man went home forgiven, that man went home justified. So I'd like to invite you, I'm just going to open up a little space. If you are not certain of your relationship with God, I'm just going to leave a little space of silence for you to turn to Jesus and agree with him. And tell him in your own words that yes, you have sinned. Yes, you are a sinner. But you have need of a Savior. And you want him to save you. That you're turning away from your own self-righteousness. You're taking his righteousness instead. If that's your need, would you tell him about it right now? Father, if there's a person here or any number of people who need you, I pray that as you once did for me, you would break their pride. Make them trust Jesus and Jesus alone and claim him. Invite him to take ownership of their lives, be their savior and their forgiver, their boss. Thank you for telling us so clearly that those who insist on lifting themselves up will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
if this morning you've trusted Christ as your Savior. Take a moment before you leave and using the card that's in your bulletin, please let us know. If you'd like to do that digitally, you can send me an email. Just go to the church website. Uh, you can use the, the text message uh, system that is mentioned here in your bulletin as well. You don't need to do that for Jesus to forgive you. Your life with God is between you and God. But there is great spiritual value of identifying and telling others what he has done for you so that you can be prayed for, so that you can be encouraged, so that other people can welcome you and love you and teach you as we're trying to do in this church family. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior today, online or here in person, please let us know. Father, now dismiss us with your grace. When we face trial and adversity this week and discouragement, give us a vision again that all that truly matters in this life is already settled. That you loved us so much that you died, Jesus, for our sins. And you will surely, along with your life, your saving life in heaven, you will give us your comfort. You will give us guidance. You will give us provision. Because as your word says, if, Father, you did not spare your own son, you will also, along with him, give us all things. Help us share this good news. And if anyone, Lord, here this morning has come to you and made themselves, Lord, by confessing Christ as Savior, they've actually become your disciple, Jesus. I pray that they would let us know so that we may celebrate with them and join them in giving you thanks. I ask this in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, amen. God bless you, folks. Love you. It is great to be home. There is the sunshine just on cue. We have a little work ahead of us. If you have a few minutes to help us uh, put things away to be ready for next week, we'd appreciate your time. God bless you. If there's anything we can do to help, please let us know. Bye-bye.